surrender to Washington pieces of paper with pictures of dead guys on it. It's theirs, give it to them. The very fact that we're living in an economic system in which we're trading in pieces of paper with pictures of dead guys on them and no attachment to any other reality, I believe is a sign that we are under judgment. Hello and welcome to Bitcoin and the Bible, a show for Christians who love God's word, care about sound money, and want to learn about the moral case for Bitcoin. Join us as we hold fast to God's word and huddle Bitcoin. Hello, everyone. My name is Simon, and I am here with my Bitcoin brothers, David and Will. And we are super thankful for all of you. In fact, we've had a huge influx of new listeners over the past couple of weeks, and we're thankful for all of you who are new with us. Uh, we thought we'd get past along a little reminder before we dive into today's content. We are on episode 13 today. And we would encourage all of you who are new with us, if you haven't done so already, go back to the beginning and start with episode one, because it really helps to understand the context of not only who we are, but what is Bitcoin. And, and as we dive into season two here and think through God's will for money and how Bitcoin compares to that, we believe it will be helpful for you to, to make sure that you have a good, confident understanding of what Bitcoin is. And that's what episodes three through seven were designed to give you. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can use two mechanisms. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter handles are posted in the show notes, or you can email us at bitcoinandthebible at gmail.com. Also, make sure you check out our website. We've recently updated it with some new resources, bitcoinandthebible.com, and we pray that this will help you in your journey to educate yourself, to do the work, to evaluate whether or not Bitcoin is for you. Today's topic is an important one. And in preparation for this episode, we have spent hours praying, studying God's Word, uh, discussing, and even debating the topic of human government and individual liberty as it pertains to the Bible and Bitcoin. As we have engaged with hundreds of Christians on the topic of Bitcoin over the past couple of years, uh, we've discovered that there's really two big summary questions that overlap that we hope to address in this episode today. So the first question is, what if my country's government bans or increases its regulation over Bitcoin? Second question would be, what if my country's government changes its tax code on Bitcoin? And both of these questions are really pertinent for all individuals who either already own Bitcoin or are considering savings in it, whether they're Christians or not. However, these questions are even more pertinent to Christians due to the biblical ethic of submission to authority and specifically in light of multiple New Testament passages, which speak directly to the believer's relationship to human government. I'd like to read for us as we begin today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Peter says, submit yourselves to, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Act as free people. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And these words resonate just as truly today as they did in the New Testament. We know that they resonate across time and space, across cultures. Every government in the world, every Christian in the world has the opportunity to go back to God's word and see his truth preserved for us there. So, We'd like to do that tonight, and before we begin, we'd like to offer some important clarifications. So, Firstly, we're not providing any form of tax or legal advice, but are simply seeking to draw out the clear teaching and necessary implications of the scriptures as they relate to the topic at hand. Regulation and taxation of Bitcoin 
is definitely a moving target of governments all around the world. Therefore, when it comes to Bitcoin and to your taxes, make sure you do your own research. Uh, our second caveat here is while this discussion is of the intersection of government authority and individual liberty in the realm of money is part of a much larger context, uh, we will not have the time or the ability to extend our discussion to the more difficult subject of how Christians should relate to their government in any arena. We're going to focus specifically on government interface with money and, of course, Bitcoin. So with those caveats in place, let's just say this. We're not planning to cop out here and dance around this topic. That would be very unfaithful to God and to you. Our worldview is that God's word is sufficient to properly inform Christians with a biblical worldview in all areas that pertain to life and godliness. And thus, we are confident that if we go to God's word with the right attitude and method, we can find answers for even the hard questions. Further, we have been encouraging all of you to consider the moral case for saving in Bitcoin. And for us to leave these questions unanswered would be dangerous and unkind to you. We do not profess to have all of the answers, but we're delighting in the process of walking down this road together, knowing that our God is faithful to his children and he will provide wisdom for you just as he has done for us. So to begin tonight, we are going to share together with you some of the truths that God's word provides for us about government and human liberty. We believe that God communicates to us in the form of propositional truth. And so we want to start with things that we affirm to be true about these two topics before we start raising some of the more difficult questions and seeking to understand what God has to say about them. So we'll start by affirming the truth that God has instituted human government as a necessary part of his world. We also affirm that God is glorified when Christians submit to authority, even unjust authority. Many generations of Christians have been faced with the difficult task of living with wisdom under unjust, tyrannical, and authoritarian governmental systems. This is not a new problem, and it will remain this way until Jesus Christ returns. Yeah, the fourth truth that we'll affirm is that government is not a complete solution for the evils of society, which stem from the evil of sin in the hearts of men. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ and the rule of God can remedy evil comprehensively. Government can only restrain it. While governments have seized control over the majority of money used today, we believe that individual choice is the ultimate determinant of money. Said more simply, we do not believe that any government owns money, as money existed in God's economy prior to the creation of nation-states. Individuals own money as an extension of their private property rights and secondary sovereignty granted by God. You can go back to episode 10 for a discussion of that. We believe in the inviolable connection between life, work, and money, which has existed since God created Adam and Eve. Thus, for a government to own money would be to deny an individual their personal right to own their labor and time, and thus would result in the government owning their life. We call that slavery. And for reference, you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 6. Further, we believe that while God has granted government authority over believers, this authority is limited in sphere and should not overreach its delegated sphere. Christians are given the responsibility to disobey or resist the government when the government commands an action in violation of God's revealed will. For example, a Christian believer can and should be willing to preach the Lordship of Christ no matter whether it is legal or not. 
We believe that the role of government in God's economy is necessarily limited to that which serves, the word being diakonos, Romans 13.4, the interest of its citizens, and specifically protects their life and property rights from violence. So with those truths, now we have a foundation that we believe will give us the opportunity to look at a couple of specific questions tonight. And many of these questions are questions that you have asked us in the form of emails and text messages and so forth. And we're just excited that we can finally now uh, deliver on our promise to you to be able to go into them in some depth. But the first question that we need to discuss tonight is, is it within the government's God-ordained sphere of authority to define and to dictate money? And by extension of that authority to ban certain forms of money, including Bitcoin. So let's go back to the beginning. We talked through Genesis 9 in a previous episode. And in Genesis 9, we saw that God, after the flood, after the Noahic flood, in which case God cleansed the earth from the violence and the, the bloodshed that had preceded the flood, he restarts humanity with a new uh, structure and sense that he provides for the capital punishment that exists when human life is taken, human life is to be offered. And that foundation is what we see as God's first kind of speaking to a form of human government in the Genesis uh, account. So I'll read Genesis 9, 5, 7. It says, I certainly will require your lifeblood from every animal. I will require it. And from every person, from every man as his brother, I will require the life of a person. Whoever sheds human blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So in this, Genesis 9 verses 5 through 7 provides the foundation for human government as an authority structure built on the simple yet limited purpose of protecting the private property rights of individuals, beginning with the most basic property right, which is life itself. So we see there, Simon, the establishment of property rights as the, as the very foundation, really, of, of the purpose of government. We can move forward now into the Pentateuch, into the Mosaic Law, where God provides a, a legal system to govern his people. And as we examine that, we, we can look at the topic of taxation and commerce in the nation of Israel, which I think is, will be very instructive for us in terms of first principles. And one thing that we observe right away is nowhere do we see God stipulating what money was, nor do we see him instituting a system whereby the government dictates or controls monetary policy nor supply. Right? If this were the God-ordained role of government, we would expect to see God's revealed will for this in his establishment of the laws for the nation of Israel. In the Mosaic Code, he, he covers every regulation down to, to the kind of fabric that you can wear. And so he governs both the, the worship of his people, but he also governs the social interaction of his people and the, the commercial interactions of his people. So what do we see? What we see in the Mosaic Law is that God establishes principles that prescribe a fair, just commerce. So for example, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 35 and 36 God says, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. And as we discussed in episode 11 entitled Seeds of Growth, 
monetary exchange and free trade exist in human history in Genesis prior to the development of nation state governments. So economic action based on free independent choice of individuals is the norm throughout the Bible. What we often think of as Adam Smith's invisible hand is, is merely the outworking of God's created order of rational secondary sovereign beings uh, working together to cooperate and trade and better sculpt and care for his garden. Yeah. I think one of the other principles here is to think about the fact that God owns everything. We've talked about this before and he created everything. And because he created human government, if he wanted government to own money, he could have rightfully done so. That would have been within his sphere. He would rightfully have done so. That's right. So the reality that he doesn't, that we see in the Bible, multiple examples. We already talked about how Abraham purchased the field from Ephron the Hittite. Uh, we see another one in First Chronicles 21. We see David buying the threshing floor or the land of Ornon the Jebusite to offer a sacrifice to God. And Ornon the Jebusite's like, no, I'll just give it to you, David. I don't want, you don't have to pay me anything for it. But King David, the ruler of the nation, insists on paying the full price for the private property of Ornon the Jebusite. And he does not exert any form of eminent domain of the government over that property. He recognizes that private property rights of the individual supersede the government's rights and therefore resists any form of sin in, in stealing from that man and insists on paying full price for that. So in summary, our first answer to the first question, we do not believe that it is within the government's sphere of authority to define and dictate money and therefore banning any form of money, including Bitcoin, would be outside of that sphere from a biblical perspective. Okay, so second question would be then, if the government does not own money, how did they come to have control over it, right? And is there any scriptural passages that speak to the process of government starting to absorb the control and dictating what the money must be? I definitely think we can see traces of this. So if you think back, uh, the first big government that you really encounter as you read through your Bibles is Egypt. And it was really interesting for me as I was researching Egypt Egypt had abundant gold reserves, so much gold that for them, gold was basically just jewelry, a store of value, and a decorative metal that they used to basically uh, put into their tombs, the pyramids, uh, make their palaces, their pharaohs appear to be the most wealthy nation. And, and for sure, gold is in Egypt. But if you look closely, gold is not money in Egypt in the terms of a medium of exchange. It could be there as a store of value for sure. But if you think about what did the Egyptians use for money, it's silver because silver was scarce in Egypt. In fact, the, the Egyptian word for silver, hedge, came to mean money, right? So we see this biblically starting in Genesis chapter 41, verses 56 and 57, where Joseph, as the secondary ruler to Pharaoh in Egypt, sells grain to the Egyptians and to the people of all of the earth, verse 57. So this suggests to us that all peoples and nations surrounding Egypt knew what medium of exchange, in this case silver, would be accepted in exchange for their grain in Egypt. Further in the story, in Genesis 42, 25, Joseph puts the money of his brothers back into their sacks for them to take back to the land of Israel. And the word that's used for money there is the same Hebrew word for silver. 
Further, Genesis 43, Joseph's brothers return with double the money. They realize that they shouldn't have had that money in their sacks. So when they get home, they, they scrounge up enough money to be able to take it back in double, which suggests that their ability to acquire money outside of Egypt allowed them to bring something back that was acceptable to the Egyptians. In Genesis 44, Joseph's brothers protest that they would not steal silver or gold from Joseph's house. So here we see an acknowledgement further that both silver and gold were in some form acceptable money in Egypt. And in Genesis 45, Joseph sends his brothers back to Jacob and gives Benjamin, his youngest brother, 300 pieces of silver. Now, we're not suggesting here that those pieces of silver were official Egyptian coinage, right? This is way, way, way before any historical records of coinage in Egypt. This is around 1876 BC. So pieces of silver, we take literally as they're actually physical pieces of silver that you would have weighed out and, and calculated that, their value in form of their weight. In Genesis 47, verses 13 through 16, Joseph accumulated the money in the Egyptian government in exchange for grain until the money died in the sense that the people valued food more than money and they basically sold everything, themselves and their land to the Egyptian government as a result of the severe seven-year famine that occurred in that time frame. And then if you fast forward to the end of the captivity of the nation of Israel, in Exodus 12, verse 35, the nation of Israel takes the articles of silver and clothing from Egypt as plunder when they leave Egypt. So there's the suggestion that as God extracts his nation from the, the power of Pharaoh, they leave with a significant amount of Egypt's wealth in the form of precious metals and clothing. So what do we conclude from this quick excursion through Genesis and Exodus? Well, gold and silver, more predominantly, are being used as money in the time of the patriarchs. But the key here is they were not established or regulated by any form of governmental monetary policy. So where else do we see governments? potentially taking hold of the money. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 and 17, the prophet Samuel responds to the people of Israel's demand for a king. And it, the quote there is, to judge us like all of the nations. That's chapter 8, verse 5. And Samuel warns the people. That basically, they are rejecting God as their ruler and, and choosing to take to themselves a king who will assume an absolute sovereignty or ownership over all areas of individual liberty and private property. This passage, Simon, uh, 1 Samuel 8, is uh, just really instructive and worthy of a lot of time of contemplation. But, but clearly what we see out of it is that the people in choosing a government like the nations, in other words, uh, the, the pagan nations around them have, in a sense, brought on their own servitude. A government to, to guarantee your rights, to, to defend you, whereas they have the Lord as their king, and he defended them. Joshua clearly illustrates that in, in, in the book of Joshua. But in the exchange, to be like all the other nations, to bring in a bureaucracy, a government, Samuel says, this is what you're going to get. You, you're going to get benefit. You think you're going to get benefit from this, and you, you, know, you may or may not, but, but clearly it's going to come at a cost. And so once that camel gets its nose in the tent, the, the bureaucracy will do nothing but grow, and with it, the price tag associated. And so 
that's what you see as you as you begin to read the history of the nation and and the kings is is that there's a continual extraction of wealth from the people and the people groan under it and when you have righteous rulers there's sort of a relenting on some of that but but overall what you see is a, a continually growing bureaucracy so in first samuel chapter 8 verses 10 through 17 let me just read that passage we can see what is predicted what's coming Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them in his chariots for himself and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to gather in his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters and use them as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and he'll give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give it to his high officials and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Yeah, that connection there between life, private property, and money is what we want to draw out here. You can't just give a piece of that to the government and expect that the government is not going to own everything as a result. As you fast forward here, this is true no matter whether the king is good or bad. King Saul was clearly not a very good king, but King David and King Solomon were some of the best kings that God put in place over the nation of Israel. And yet they fulfilled this prophecy to the T. They absorbed authority over every aspect of their people's lives. And then you start to see what happens when kingdoms come in conflict with each other. You see nations starting to come to the, the premise that they're going to go demand what they want from the nation they're seeking to conquer. And we see this happening in 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Ben-Hadad, who's the king of the neighboring nation of Aram, demands of Ahab, king of Israel, all of the gold and the silver. Now, again, he could be demanding just the gold and the silver that Ahab personally owned, but it's also highly likely that Ahab had to reach into the kingdom's treasuries to be able to satisfy this demand. And so therefore you see the reality that when the government starts to own the money, the people's money becomes vulnerable to the warfare of the nations around them. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? So the central government extracts the wealth from the people, stores it, and then another central government essentially comes along and seizes it, and so the wealth of the people is, is bled away. Indeed. So the very thing that could and should provide protection ultimately may not be protecting the money. The last passage we'll look at in this section of Scripture is 1 Kings chapter 21, where uh, Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel want the vineyard of a man named Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when he refuses to sell it to them, they still just can't seize it. So they have to have him judicially murdered on the false charge of blasphemy, and then the land is ultimately forfeited to the crown. So even in this context, we still see some semblance of property rights being kind of respected and, and acknowledged, at least, even by a wicked king, Ahab and his wife. Uh, but ultimately, we know that the more government entrenches itself as an authority, the less likely it is that property rights are going to persist. So throughout the Old Testament, money was a free market. Good. 
without government control or coinage. So where did it change? It's interesting. So we can look at Greek and Roman history, right? That predates the the New Testament, the the intertestamental times, the, the period covered by Daniel and his prophecies, and then into the setting of the New Testament, which we are in a sense parachuted into with, with existing governmental structures and, and so forth. And what we see is by the time of the New Testament is, is that governments had gained control over money, that, that coinage had been introduced and developed. And, and really, I would argue for two primary reasons, one of which was to finance their wars. It presented the ability for the government ultimately to debase the currency and extract wealth secretively from the population in order to finance their wars. And then beyond that is the pressures of international trade. I mean, it certainly is more efficient to trade internationally with recognizable coinage than it is to have to weigh out every single transaction. So so that which um, is a technological improvement or advancement and would bring about human flourishing and did bring about a certain measure of human flourishing also provided the, the, again, camel's nose in the tent, as it were, for the debasement of the currency and ultimately the impoverishment of the people. Yeah, I, I wish we had the time to go into all of the history. There's so much out there on both Greek and Roman coinage and why they developed the ways that they did. Uh, but I think you're right, David. A lot of it developed as a response to war, as a response to the the necessity of funding the military machine to protect that society and that government. Or expand it. Or expand it, for sure. But I I think it's really interesting just to to pull on a couple of those threads that we talked about earlier as it pertains to Bitcoin, right? So we we keep talking about why is Bitcoin money? Well, it's, it's the scarcity, right? It's the controllable, programmable scarcity of Bitcoin. And you see that in the sense that Previously, we talked about how silver was money for the Egyptians because they had so much gold, it wasn't scarce enough to be a medium of exchange. It was kind of the opposite in Greece. They did not have gold, but they had tons of silver. So for them, they, they couldn't use uh, silver as their primary coinage. They had to use gold. But then you get to Rome, and, and Rome used pieces of bronze, which uh, is interesting just because uh, their, their Latin word for uh, cattle, pecus, is ultimately what becomes pecunia, which leads us to our word for money there, the Latin word for money, pecunia, because they they basically derived the ratio of what their bronze was worth by by measuring how many cows you could buy with it, right? It was so the relationship between agriculture and trade with agriculture ultimately led them to their bronze ratio. But the, the key thing is, as you watch their bronze to silver ratio change, And it changes dramatically as a result of the first Punic Wars, which start in that 264 to 242 BC period. Again, um, almost 300 years before Christ, before uh, AD uh, 0 to 30 and that New Testament timeframe that the biblical record picks up in. But the the currency starts to undergo a dramatic debasement. You see a 50% reduction in weight at the result of the first Punic Wars and then a second 50% debasement in 225 BC. And what you're seeing is that ultimately the currency control that the government is exerting is stealing money from the citizens, stealing value from the citizens by, by controlling it to the level of basically uh, printing more in, in, a 20, in an early BC time frame. We could go on and on here for sure. And, and it is fascinating to sort of read and, and think and make those kinds of connections. But 
here's my conclusion, Simon, on all this, is that war leads to monetary debasement. We can look at our own history, the history of the United States, right? The United States left the gold standard in 1933. Why? Well, the, the proximate cause was the, was the depression that had come upon the world and so forth. And so FDR confiscated private gold and then revalued it and, and immediately impoverished the citizenry and so forth. But I think a deeper dive than that would argue that really World War I, which was fought by the, you know, the first international war, as it were, was fought by debasement of the, of the currency. All the nations exceeded their ability to tax the people. And so they began to print currency in excess of their gold reserves in order to conduct this war to end all wars. You can go beyond that to 1971, when August, when Nixon closes the, what's left of the gold window, right? After World War II, the, the Bretton Woods Agreement was abandoned in 1971. Prior to this, the U.S. dollar is tied to gold. All the other world currencies are tied to the U.S. dollar. But in August of 71, Nixon closes the gold window and severs the linkage. And from that point on, all fiat currencies are entirely unbacked and, and float. What was going on historically at that time? Well, what was going on was Vietnam. We were conducting a long and expensive war in Vietnam that was being financed through monetary debasement. And you add in LBJ's Great Society, and you've got the recipe for the destruction of the remaining tie to real money. And I would argue one more for you, and, and that is that the war on terror that's been going on now for 20 years has led to a massive expansion of the U.S. dollar. The government continues to spend in the trillions and through debasement extract it secretly from their citizens. Okay, so as we turn now to our third question, we've, we've talked about the reality that government ownership of money is not a good thing. But we recognize that, that God's law does include a design for human government that includes taxation. So we want to look first at the Mosaic law and then secondarily at the New Testament, Romans chapter 13, to, to see, does God approve of all taxation and does he require believers to submit to all forms of taxation? And the first thought process we want to look for is, what does taxation look like in the Mosaic law? And we definitely can see taxation there. You recognize that the priests and the Levites who ministered to God in his temple gave of themselves to that work and, and forfeited the opportunity to earn a, a full-time traditional wage outside of their temple work. It's not like they spent all of their time in their temple in the temple work, but they did spend enough time there that God asked the people, required of the people <laughs> through taxation, to bring offerings to the temple that would provide for the physical needs of the priests and the Levites. So the concept of having taxation fund forms of the government is, is a biblical concept. But when we look at the Mosaic law, here's some things that we don't see. We don't see income tax. We don't see property tax. We don't see capital gains tax. We don't see sales tax. And we do not see wealth redistribution. Yeah. We don't see deficit spending. We don't see inflation of the monetary supply. We don't see central banking. We don't see currency manipulation. And we don't see centrally managed interest rates. These things are antithetical to secondary sovereigns engaging in free trade with one another. They corrupt and destroy the signal of the marketplace in order to benefit the few privileged at the top. So then, poor people, we just leave them behind in the dust? Is that what God prescribed? Of course not. There was a, a very 
a thoughtful and, and well-organized social welfare system within the Mosaic Code, right, that was funded through private charity. But the important link there, and man, I'd love to do a whole session on this one, is that it was linked to work. Don't glean your, your fields to the edges, right? Don't, don't go over your fruit trees a second time, but allow the poor to come to work and to receive in exchange for their labor that which they need, and then supplement it through generous private charity. That's right. Preserve the dignity attached to work. So how did the government exist in the Mosaic Law? Like, where was it? Well, God isn't silent on this, right? If you look at Deuteronomy chapter one, Moses is giving the law to the people who are getting ready to go into his land and, and live in it. So God gives them a structure of government. It's a structure that starts with Moses at the top, but there's a delegated authority structure of men chosen by the people and appointed by Moses. And they would have been appointed over the ranks of the people, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, tens. So if you do a little bit of math here, you can estimate this. Numbers 11, 12, 21 tells us that there were about 600,000 men in Israel. So obviously more women and children total. But if you look at the, the men, if, if there, there had been approximately the, the ratios that were given here, leaders of hundreds, fifties, thousands, and so forth, there's a maximum of about 78,600 men or, or about 13% of the population that would have been a form of governmental judicial leadership. Their function was to judge and to protect the rights of the people uh, with respect to the law that God had given to them. And a law that's very clearly laid out, right? As you mentioned, David, right? This law is comprehensive. It covers so many aspects of life from worship, but also to civil law and property disputes and anything and everything that you could think of. And the people needed the opportunity to go to a judge to have their rights protected. And ultimately, if the, the matter was too difficult for the local judge, then it got escalated up all the way up the ladder to Moses if necessary. And the men that were chosen were based on their wisdom and their discernment and their experience. And uh, we see that reflected in the commands given to them. In Deuteronomy 1.16, it says, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with him. And we see... Evidence that, again, the government is funded, right? God commands the people in Deuteronomy 12, 6, you shall bring there your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your vowed offerings, your voluntary offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. But what we don't see is that all of this funding was there to basically employ these governmental leaders full time. These were volunteers who had the opportunity to serve as judges, but, but not as a result of full-time employment, thereby not mandating this large-scale governmental system that needed to be funded through extensive forms of taxation, of which we are not unfamiliar. Interestingly, Simon, I'm old enough to remember when government workers used to be called public servants. You, you don't hear that terminology anymore. Yeah, and we could take the time. And we probably will at some point, knowing us, and go through the Mosaic Law and look at all of the things that God protects in the rights of the people, the private property rights. But you don't have to look too far past the Ten Commandments, right? Stealing and theft is protecting personal property rights. Uh, the admonition to do, you shall not murder is protecting the life of the individual. 
We have the, the admonition not to covet your neighbor, neighbor's property rights. So we, we, we want to center in on that principle that God cares about the individual and his or her rights to life and personal property and the liberty to live in the land and to work freely in the land. And so our summary of this is to say, when you look at the Mosaic law and you look at taxation in the Mosaic law, it was limited. The government was limited in size and scope and focused primarily on the judicial enforcement of God's law. And there was not a need for extensive executive authority, legislative creativity, and the limited financial support was there to to provide for the priests and the Levites. Finally, you do not see God speaking specifically to any governmental regulation of the monetary supply or currency, as we've talked about previously. So we need to get to a big passage. This is the one that we've all been waiting for here. And for this is true for any generation, but obviously ours is steeped in conversations and thought process about how does Romans 13, Paul's admonition to the believers in Rome and to the New Testament Christian at the time, how does that apply? So we want to take a careful look at this. Let's read it first. Will, would you do that for us? Glad to. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all who, what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom. Respect to whom respect. Honor to whom honor. So Romans 13 is very clear about certain things. And so let's acknowledge each of those and, and be faithful to what God gives us. We are, we are Christians who are bound by our faith in Christ and, and guided by his word. And even when we don't like what scripture has to say to us, we submit to it. And in some circumstances, this is true about Romans 13. Every person, not just those who want to, or those who are under good forms of government, is to submit. Now, this is not a universal call to obey. This is a submission, and we need to be careful to to not overextend that. But every person is to submit to their governing authorities. Beyond that, governmental authority is derived from God's authority, Paul says, and is not independent from God's authority. There are spheres of authority that, that... Christians have recognized since the beginning. There is the the sphere of family, the the sphere of the church, and the sphere of the government. And and those spheres have their own place. And really the the friction comes is is when they rub up against one another. But but those spheres of authority, we certainly acknowledge them. They are biblical, and we're told to submit in each of those spheres, right? So in Ephesians 5, 22, and 24, wives are told, they're commanded by Paul to submit to their own husbands in everything. In Hebrews 13, 17, we're told to obey and submit to our church elders. So they keep watch over our soul. 
Here in Romans 13, 1, we're told to every person is to be in submission to or, or submit to the governmental authorities. Yet, I think all Christians would acknowledge that this call to submit in, in each of these spheres has limits. The discussion comes on exactly where are those limits and how are they formed. Exactly. So just as it's a serious uh, problem when a wife is not in submission to her husband or when a man is not in submission to the church leadership, resisting just authority is serious. It's an opposition to God's ordinance and thus his authority. Yeah, it's important to, to note too here that, that Paul is speaking about the proper role of government as well as the proper submission of the people underneath that government. So he does speak to the people who are living underneath the Roman Empire and tell them that governmental rule should be focused on bringing wrath and punishment through the sword on those who practice evil. Right? Government is designed for those who practice evil. Those who engage in good behavior, per Romans 13, should not have any reason to fear the government. Again, not all governments are good, but in God's economy, government can be good to those who have good behavior. Those who are obeying God should not have any reason to fear the government. Interestingly, as well, Simon, Paul says here that government is God's ordained means to accomplish what he forbids just a couple verses earlier to individuals in Romans 12 and verse 19, right? Where he says, never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God for his written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So how does God repay? Well, certainly eternally, there's no dispute about that at all. But temporally, God has instituted governments as the means to do that. Otherwise, what happens? Otherwise, everybody takes vengeance themselves on their own perceived uh, affronts, and we end up in a, in a Genesis 6 world all over again. That answers to the listeners who have a libertarian bent such as myself. Frederick Bastiat wrote in the law, how can a group of individuals who individually have no authority to take a life how can they then come together and have more rights than they would have individually? This is how. Government has been granted by God supernaturally the authority to, to bear the sword in a way that an individual person does not have that authority. God has not granted it to them. And through that, we see that government is meant to serve the people, not the other way around. God has given us government as a, as a servant, those public servants that you were talking about earlier, David. They're to protect and provide for us. They're God's good gift. Indeed, and, and this is hard for me. It's hard for you, Will. I know it's hard for all of us to, to see this as God's good gift because we live in a world where this is not being reflected the way that God would have intended it. But it is important for us to, to call to believers of any generation and any culture and any country to recognize that subjection and submission is necessary, not only because you fear the wrath, I do fear the wrath, but it's also for the sake of conscience. In other words, it communicates to the world around us that our believer recognizes that God's will is being done even through unjust governments, even through the Roman Empire. Indeed. Because of conscience, Paul continues, it's because of conscience that we pay taxes. And in a sense, it becomes really our responsibility that we owe to God. That, that's the argument Paul is making here, is that, is that the, the obligation to pay taxes driven by our conscience, which is our recognition that government has been established by God for his glory and our good, therefore leads us by conscience to pay our taxes. So individuals are to pay to the government four things here. 
We see the direct taxes. We see customs, which are duties and fees for services, respect, and honor. So Romans 13 is very clear about these things. Now, let's talk about what it is not clear about. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that Scripture is insufficient here. What I am providing for us here is that Romans 13 does not go into every generation of government and citizens across the world, and and we need to take this passage and apply it with wisdom. And therefore, we need to think and reason rightly using other passages of Scripture and using our minds that God has given us to, to think about these concepts. So we here in the United States live in a constitutional republic, not a monarchy. And thus our governing authority is ultimately a document, not a person. So this does challenge us to think, what, what effect does that have upon how we understand the admonitions given to us in both Romans 13.1 and the passage we read previously from 1 Peter chapter 2? Beyond that, what if the taxes are levied on asset prices that are inflated, right, caused by monetary inflation and not based on the true value? In other words, that the continued debasement of the currency boosts your asset prices and thus increases your tax bill. How do we apply Romans 13 in that situation? Are all forms of taxation even proper? What about income tax, capital gains tax, property tax, sales tax? etc. And the number of taxes that we see, not just in our own government now, but throughout history are innumerable. Romans 13 does not tell us whether the government has unlimited authority to tax its citizens. And again, as we pointed out, we recognized earlier that, that there are limits to authority that, that the Bible recognizes, that all forms of authority. So in this context, what is the limit to the government's authority to tax? Simon, how do we find the limits? Who, who forms the limits? How are, how are these things derived, right? So, again, we acknowledge there are limits on the call to submission of wives to husbands and church members to elders. We would then necessarily uh, extend that and say there are limits upon right, the, the submission of individuals to government. And one that, that Christians easily recognize without any trouble at all, right, is they tell you you cannot preach the gospel then we, along with Peter and John, say we must obey God rather than man. But is that the only limitation? So what level of taxation do we determine to be too onerous? At what point does good, God-honoring taxation turn into theft? Pure, blatant theft. Not in a pure libertarian, all taxation is theft. But in a, no, the, the government is overstepping its authority, its God-given sphere of influence, and is stealing from its citizens. It's interesting earlier when, uh, Will, when you read uh, 1 Samuel 8 and God's admonition to Israel, I don't know if you noticed it there in the text, but it said twice, 10% will be the taxation that they will extract from you. Indeed. So the last thing that Romans 13 does not specifically address is at what point is the believer morally and ethically free to disobey the government due to the government's departure from its sphere and function? So with that, we'll... We'll conclude our section on Romans 13 by acknowledging that it is a significant passage for believers, especially believers who own Bitcoin. But what it does not uh, prohibit is the process of applying wisdom to the sphere of submission to taxation and thinking through the limits of the government's regulation over any form of money or asset. Now, there's another passage that frequently goes along with Romans 13. 
and is is pulled into this context. It's the known as the render to Caesar passage, right? So the question we have to answer is, didn't Jesus say we have to pay our taxes in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22, when he famously said, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's? Oh, Simon, I've been wanting to take a swing at this pitch. So here we go. Let me try to take our crack at this. Let's start with some context, right? So I'm turning you to Matthew 22. The account occurs in the synoptics, but let me take you to Matthew 22 and his account of it and begin with some context. Contextually, this occurs on sometime Tuesday, probably late Tuesday afternoon, right? So, so Jesus has come into the city on Sunday to the acclaim of the people, Hosanna to the son of David, right? They're proclaiming him the king of Israel, the Messiah. He comes in, the, the whole city turns out. He cleanses the temple on Monday morning and exerts his authority over the temple as the messianic king in, in fulfillment of Malachi. I mean, it's all looking good. The, the disciples are amazed at all of this, right? He, he control, Mark tells us he controls the temple amount. He doesn't allow them to, to use it for commerce anymore and so forth. And then the, the leadership of Israel regathers, regroups, and begins to assault him in a series of, of questions and dialogues, all designed to trap him and either get him to make a statement that would, would substantiate a charge of insurrection and they can get him taken out of the way by the Romans or to somehow destroy his popularity with the people. And because the last thing they've got ringing in their ears is Hosanna to the son of David. So here in Matthew 22, you know, they come to him and it says the Pharisees went, verse 15, plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, which are the basically a subset of the Sadducees, right? So Herodians and Pharisees, they hate each other's guts, but they hate Jesus more. So they combine saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? So what's the poll tax? The poll tax was a Roman tax. It was one denarius. A denarius was a silver coin that represented one day's wages. So it had to be paid annually, a poll tax to the Roman government, and the people hated it. They detested it. Verse 18, Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? So he is piercing right through the issue. He says, show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So they bring him a denarius. A denarius bore on it, the, it was a coin, it bore the, the image of the Caesar, uh, the emperor. And on, one, on the other side, it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So it was an assertion of divinity for the Caesar. And Jesus says, bring me this coin, Right? And then at that point, he says to them, uh, render to Caesar then the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went their way. So, so what's going on here is, is in the middle of this intense spiritual conflict with the leadership of the nation is Jesus taking a moment to give a lesson on tax policy? I don't think so. Not at all. I think what is going on here is that this denarius that he says, bring me and show me, demonstrates something. And what it demonstrates is that the nation has descended into covenant unfaithfulness. In other words, that the very fact that the money that they're having to use bears the image of a pagan emperor who declares himself divine is in itself a rebuke 
of Israel's unbelief. In other words, Sunday afternoon, right, they proclaim him, you know, Hosanna to the son of David and so forth, but that's only superficially. That they, that they are in covenant judgment, as, as spelled out in, for example, Deuteronomy 28 and verse 33, by the very fact they have to use this pagan currency. You see a similar idea, by the way, in Isaiah 28 and verse 11, where the prophet says that you will be spoken to in foreign tongues. In other words, that when the nation of Israel is subjected to Gentile languages, that is evidence that they are been covenantly unfaithful. And instead of being the leaders of the nations, they are now in subjection to the nation. So I think that's what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, listen, you people are, you're under covenant cursing here. And so when he says, render to God the things that are God, well, what are the things that belong to God? Well, the Messiah belongs to God. Your worship of Messiah belongs to God. So what Jesus is basically saying to him is, is make true in your hearts what you have proclaimed just two days before. And of course, we, we know how it works out, right? They're not willing to do that. Contextually, Jesus moves on. He answers a couple more challenges from the, from the Sadducees. And, and then verse 20, or chapter 23 of Matthew, he castigates the Pharisees. Right? So the people hated the Sadducees, but, but the, the Pharisees were in high regard. So by, so by blistering the Pharisees, he's blistering the people too. And he's calling them hypocrites. And, and he's basically, he, he ends chapter 23, right? With incredible words where he, he says that, verse 35, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he laments over Jerusalem. And then Matthew 24, 25, we have the prophecies of his return, right? And, and rescue of the people. So, so what's really going on here? I think Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue of worship. Okay? You're using foreign money, that's a sign of judgment. You've proclaimed Messiah, you've proclaimed me Messiah, make it real. That's what the lesson that he's trying to draw out from all of this. So in a sense, he's, he's not interested in the whole tax question. So, so what do we do with, with this particular um, section of, of Matthew's gospel? How do I apply it today in my life? I guess I'd say this, you know what? Uh, render to Washington pieces of paper with pictures of dead guys on it. It's theirs, give it to them. The very fact that we're living in an economic system in which we're trading in pieces of paper with pictures of dead guys on them and no attachment to any other reality, I believe is a sign that we are under judgment. And by extension, there is no picture of anyone on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not government money. It is not issued by the decree or made lawful by any nation state. Bitcoin is free market selected money that derives value from work as God intended. It bears no image of a ruler or an individual. Indeed. So you said it well there, Will. Bitcoin is not a money that is created by the government. It is a form of property. We recognize that. So let's think specifically about this question. Does the fact that Bitcoin is not created by any government and not reliant upon government regulation to protect it does that remove it in any sense from a category of assets or currencies that we traditionally uh, believe or are, are living in the reality that they're subject to, to government oversight? Well, Bitcoin's a digital property. So it is both everywhere 
and nowhere at once. That's one of its greatest strengths. It's intangibility. It's inability to be seized because it, it does not manifest a physical form. And Bitcoin provides its own security via the protocol and the software applications built on top of it, like Lightning. It does not need a system of property rights built and enforced by the government to protect its property holders. Unlike physical property, we don't need the government to enforce property rights upon the Bitcoin system. Bitcoin doesn't need to be protected by outside forces. And so by extension, we don't necessarily need to pay the government in the form of taxation to protect Bitcoin. Government can obviously pro prosecute those who steal and murder those in pursuit of others' Bitcoin, but we're not necessarily trying to employ the government to protect us because we can't protect ourselves. And I think if we look at Bitcoin itself, we render a tax in Bitcoin when we use it. When you send a Bitcoin transaction, there is a mining fee attached to it. That is the mechanism by which you are paying taxation. You are paying to the miners, render to the miners that which is due the miners. They enforce, um, they put in the work to mine the blocks. They receive a reward commensurate for their work in securing the chain. Yes. And, and just thinking about all of this, I mean, electricity, there's an electrical grid that provides the power, the electrical power to the Bitcoin network, which I think we've talked about that we would we want to get into and do an episode. Maybe that's a, a season three episode or something like that. We need to talk about Bitcoin electric usage and so forth. But there is a power grid. I mean, that's the world we live in. And, you know, we could hypothesize about, you know, creating a completely independent power grid in which there is no governmental uh, involvement and all and so forth. And that would be an interesting discussion. But the reality of the matter is, is that electricity has moved around the world through government protected and in many cases, government financed electricity grids. And so there, there is a sense in which um, there's a, a tax that needs to be paid in order to facilitate all of that. And so, you know, what is that? How does that work? Uh, you know, maybe that is part of a property tax, a, a reasonable property tax that would be paid to, to, uh, for that kind of infrastructure. But that in and of itself would also be an interesting discussion. Yeah, and I think this is good because this is pushing us back to God's word to say, how does a technology like Bitcoin fit into the concept of property rights and governmental protection of property rights, limited as it is? But the last question that we have is really pertinent. By God's providence, we live in a time and a place where the government is not yet hostile to Bitcoin. We recognize that that's not true for all of the countries around the world, and, and it may not remain true in our country. Therefore, we have to look at the scenario in the future and say, if our government becomes hostile to Bitcoin, what are the principles that should guide a Christian believer who owns Bitcoin? Well, Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 18, right? If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. So as far as it depends on you and if possible, right? So it's not always possible to be at peace with everyone, but we need to make maximum effort to do so. Proverbs 22.3 says, A prudent person sees evil and hides himself, but the naive proceed and pay the penalty. So if the government or any business or individual seeks to bring you evil and you see that coming, you anticipate on the horizon that the government has bad intentions, investigate your options and act prudently. What can you do to avoid that harm? Indeed. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus told his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be as wary as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now, obviously, contextually, Jesus's words to his disciples were not addressed to us. So we can't take them out of context, but we must be able to look at the principle that he is speaking to, which is that when faced with tyranny, we can respond with both wisdom and hopefully innocence in the sense that we are not living in violation of the law, blatant violation of the law to the extent that we can. First Peter 3, verse 17, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Right? If God should so will it that you suffer, then do so, but suffer for doing the right. Don't suffer for doing the wrong. I'm reminded of Paul's words over in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. We are free in Christ, but we're not to use that freedom as a, as a way to... License for evil. As a license for evil. Very good. Thanks. So remember, God is sovereign even over oppressive governments. So ultimately, our hope is not in Bitcoin. Our hope is in God. Indeed. Our hope is in God. And as a challenge to us, I want to ask you the question, what is the most peaceful, God-honoring way to deprive government of its unjust power and restore individual liberty? We believe that answer could be Bitcoin, but time will tell for sure. So as we finish tonight, let's focus our hearts and mind back on what we've learned from Scripture. The first thing that we saw tonight is that the Bible does not shy away from the tension between individual liberty and governmental authority. It's there. It's all the way there through, throughout Scripture. Secondly, we see that government is the instrument of God to defend the righteous from evildoers by protecting their property rights. Thirdly, we saw that money is not owned or defined by government, at least not in God's economy. We recognize that it is in our world today. Fourthly, we see that believers are commanded by God to submit to their government as a means of glorifying God, and that this submission does include paying taxes. Finally, we see that believers who own Bitcoin can embrace the reality that Bitcoin is stateless money that does not bow to any centralized control and could be embraced by governments outside of their own in the event of excessive taxation or regulation. As we conclude today, we want to thank all of you for your support and your encouragement. And we in turn want to encourage you to trust God, love Christ, love your neighbor, and save in Bitcoin. 